Prior to what they're doing now, it's all faculty-centered. It's not really taken into consideration. Well, are we meeting the students' needs? Are we really preparing them for the biomedical workforce? Welcome to Hello PhD, the podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we learn about a scientific approach to teaching science. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 43. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. So Dan, guess what we're drinking today? Not beer. We are drinking coffee because it is 10 a.m. on Saturday morning. This really violates the ethanol section of our show, but I think we need to, we need to stick to the coffee for now. I think the key to success in anything is your ability to be flexible. Um, but I don't. I don't mind coffee. Coffee's a delicious beverage. I like it every day. Um, are you a coffee snob? I probably am guilty of being a coffee snob. Our listeners might be surprised to know I do not consider myself a beer snob, but I probably am a coffee snob. Is your coffee free range? Uh, this is uh, Counterculture. This is a local roaster in in Durham, North Carolina. And is it fair trade? And have you met the it's grower? All, and... It's all the things. Um, and this was uh, this was done on a French press. Oh. Ooh la la. Yeah. And, you know, actually, it's interesting. I got a French press about two and a half years ago, and I've since gotten to the pour over thing, but I've not used a percolator in over two years. That is just incredible. Um, coffee is one of the ways that you can tell I worked in lab. So every single morning, I weigh the beans. I think people think that's a little bit crazy. So you have a, you have a scale, a kitchen yeah, like scale. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I could probably get pretty close with the scoop, but every time I've gone back to just scooping, the coffee doesn't turn out the way I like it. So... Uh, right now I'm using about 15 grams of beans, of course in metric, cause you know, what is an ounce? I don't even no, know. That's, that's the pre-ground. That is the pre-ground. doesn't matter. The weight <laughs> shouldn't change, right? <laughs> I don't know. That'd be an interesting experiment. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I have not gotten in, oh, and I have to, uh, I heat the water to, I think 97 Celsius. So that's, that's where I'm Is that uh, right 210 Fahrenheit? That's what you're going for, right? Uh, I don't know in Fahrenheit. Okay. That's, uh, I worked in a lab. I have no idea. All right. So actually this is good listeners out there. If you want the perfect... Cup. If you want Dan's perfect cup of coffee, yep. we've got 15 grams of beans. 15 grams of beans. 97 degrees Celsius water. You, temperature gauge or you have a thermometer? Fancy, I have a very fancy electric kettle. So my, my green tea comes at 85 degrees. My coffee is at 97. So, I mean, there's a lot of coffee snobbery to go around here. Uh, it's not snobbery. It's like once you work in a lab for 10 years or more then you just crave the precision. If you don't want your coffee to be variable every morning, you may as well. Yeah, I guess that makes like sense, it. right? You find I use you really like cheap, you do it. The funny thing is I use really cheap coffee beans. 15 but, grams. But very of, precise, cheap coffee beans. 15 grams of Folgers crystals. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just stir that right in. You do your pour over Folgers. I don't even, I don't even <laughs> brew that. I just like eat the crystals. <laughs> Dan, we have a great episode today. Actually, what we're going to do is we're going to do a two-parter I love a two-parter. Yeah, so I had a chance to sit down with Dr. Shannon Jones, who is now a teaching faculty member at the University of Richmond in Virginia, and we had a fantastic conversation that covered several different topics, but what I wanted to do is there really were two main themes that I thought really needed their own standalone episode. The first one that we're going to get into today, as you alluded to in the intro, is Shannon talked a lot about ways that 
we're starting to bring scientific thinking into the way we teach science at the college level. Gasp. <laughs> Why is it taking us so long <laughs> to get to this? This is, uh, it seems like somebody would have come up with this, right? But yeah. Well, Shannon's you know, doing it. I think as you guys will see, I mean, so much of what she was talking about seems like common sense. And yet nobody has done it until now. Yeah. Nobody had done it until now. So, so we're going to do that this week. But then next week, what I wanted to do is really get into that specific career that she is in, and that is the non-tenure track teaching faculty position. Because I know we have a lot of people who are interested in teaching and education, people who know maybe I don't want to do the lab thing. I really love teaching what's out there for me. So we had a really nice conversation about that that I think we'll get to next week. Yeah, I've, I've known a lot of people over the years who really enjoyed the teaching part, but you know, could take or leave the lab mm-hmm. part. So. If that's you, tune in next week for uh, some real-life examples of what that looks like. Yeah, and Shannon dispelled a few myths about that career path. So I think you'll want to stick around and listen to that next week. Cool. Well, how do we get started learning about teaching science in a scientific way? Why don't we just jump right in to my conversation with Shannon Jones and some of the things she's doing to improve science teaching. And then we'll interrupt if I have questions. (laughs) You always do. I always do. My name is Shannon Jones. So I started back in August of 2015. The position, my official title is the Director of Biological Instruction. It's a, it's called a continuing director position of the non-tenure stream. So this position will never be eligible for tenure. Um, but most of my duties include mostly teaching and curriculum development and um, development of new laboratory activities for students to give them an authentic research experience. So essentially, I I do have a research component for my position in addition to the teaching, but it's all in a classroom setting. And I work strictly with undergraduates. So bulk of my job consists of undergraduate education. Mm-hmm. So your job yeah. then is really 100% teaching. 100% teaching, So it's yes. like a faculty job, but just focused on the teaching part. Just post, uh, focus on the teaching, but not just teaching it's really um the pedagogy so including new strategies um in the classroom and sharing those strategies with other faculty um so a a big part of my job is the course redesign so how can we make the labs more um open inquiry based so to give them again a real sense of what science is like so how do we move away from cookbook labs to authentic research. So the part of my job is coming up with a module and troubleshooting it. So say preparing that module over the summer to see what the potential kinks are. Um, so troubleshooting the pitfalls and optimizing it over the summer. And again, is coming up with new uh, teaching strategies for the classroom as well. So it's really not just teaching, but it's curriculum development and course redesign. Okay, so really a lot of your <coughs> job is not just to fulfill a teaching role then, but to really modernize the way teaching is done in the department. Yes. It's they call it this call to action. It's really this really long memo. Um, it talks about the current standing of biology. So what does it mean to get a degree in biology at, at, at this point and in the past? And so what that meant in general was, again, students memorizing random facts, right? There was really no synthesis. It was if you can regurgitate information you're going to do well, but what they found is students weren't prepared for graduate level work, right? Because they haven't developed these skills of critical thinking, problem solving. So vision and change is to take what we know that hasn't worked in biology education and restructure that to make it student-centered. So prior to what the, the, the goal, so prior to what they're doing now is all faculty-centered. It's not really taken into consideration 
or are we meeting the students' needs? Are we really preparing them for the biomedical workforce? So vision and change, sort of in, in my own perception, is we're moving away again from rote memorization, lower level thinking, right? If you consider Bloom's taxonomy, we're moving away from the lower levels of thinking, moving towards synthesis and application of new materials. So there we're creating scientists who can analyze data, not just memorize factoids, but apply that to real world problems. So we're developing or creating problem solvers, critical thinking individuals who are now going to be added to the workforce. So again, it's just changing the way we think about teaching science mm -hmm. to make it less faculty centered, more student centered. All right, so Dan, let's stop a second. I happen to know because you know, I was a teaching postdoc. We did a lot of pedagogical training. Um, so I've had some training on Bloom's taxonomy. Do you know what Bloom's taxonomy is? Is that something you've bumped up against? Uh, is it a flower classification system? I hope. <laughs> uh, I'd not, be interested. Not exactly, although it does have the word bloom and taxonomy. Yeah, which, I don't know what else it could be. No, so what Bloom's taxonomy really is, really this different levels of thinking that are required in the way we teach, right? And so at the lowest level of the pyramid, there's actually the thing that probably happens the most, and that's just memorization, remembering facts. I've done some of that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how much of I've the, done a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, if you really think back on, can you remember your science courses you took in undergrad? I do, yeah. I remember a lot of them. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll pick organic chemistry for the sake of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, how a lot are, of memorization. Yeah, I mean, how are these courses formatted, typically? Well, if, if I recall... Any organic chemistry, it was you had to remember which reagents, what temperature, what the reactions turned into, all of the steps. Um, I couldn't tell you any of it right now, but at the time, I, I knew it cold. Yeah, and that's something that Shannon's going to get into that I thought was really fascinating is, you know, a lot of our teaching has happened at this really base level of the, the Bloom's Taxonomy Pyramid, just remembering facts. But I know this is true for me, too. If you quizzed me on 90% of the stuff that I learned in my courses, you don't remember it at all. You may do well on the test, right? But your your actual learning may have been limited. Yeah, the, the great example was the Krebs cycle. Like, I can remember the word pyruvate, and I think it's in there, but yeah, I could not put it back together for yeah, you. Absolutely. At the time, I knew it. You know, I could draw it, I could, I could tell you every molecule in it, but now... Yeah, and I think a lot of that, it's not put into context, and your brain is not forced to actually make connections between that information that you're bringing in and other things that you understand. And so, so the, the lowest level of the pyramid is that um, un remembering facts. After that is understanding, so kind of your ability to understand or explain concepts, which, you know, sometimes you may yeah, bump up a higher level. that. Um, but then where it really starts to, I, where I think you start to make those connections are these higher levels. The next level is apply. So where you actually use information that you've gathered in new situations. Yeah, I remember experiments I did in fifth grade because we did these like little activity experiments where, you know, you make a pretend cell and some starch crosses a plastic membrane. Um, I still remember doing it. Mm -hmm. And... And I don't know, that's a lot of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And and then above apply is analyze. So you actually have different ideas from different contexts and you start to be able to piece them together in ways that maybe you weren't directly presented with, right? And this is a lot of what graduate school is all about, right? Is applying and analyzing situations or I guess analyzing situations and then applplying things you've picked up from different sources. So that's got to be the top, right? Well, above analyze, there's on. two more. So there's evaluate. Okay. Uh, which is your ability to, I guess, 
appraise a situation, make a judgment call. Um, and then last, the very top of the pyramid is to create. So actually to produce new and original things. That's cool. And that is the, the goal of graduate research, right? And in any research lab is to, to do all of these things in order to produce some new piece of information for the world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's not to say with create being on top, create wouldn't happen without all of the things that are under it. So at some point you do have to be exposed to new facts and understand them. But I think the issue comes in, and this is what Shannon's going to get into, is so much of our educational system, at least in the sciences, really stops at those bottom levels. And so um, as she's going to talk about, this can have some real implications for people going on to graduate school or into research careers if they haven't really exercised those muscles of these higher levels of the, the Bloom's Taxonomy Pyramid. Let's get back to it. Okay. So what's interesting about that, I think, is you're doing this at the undergrad intro biology mm -hmm. level right right moving away from just teaching facts from mm -hmm. a textbook to trying to facilitate or foster mm -hmm. critical thinking skills right. all the way from day one when students mm -hmm. walk into intro bio yes right which i think is really different yes. than what my experience right. was right in intro bio or mm -hmm. even really my upper right. level bio <laughs> classes what does that really look like in an intro Bio sure. class. Right. So we still have to cover some content. So I tell you a little bit about what my course schedule looks like. So we start with evolution, then we move into the central dogma, um, and then so we talk about gene expression, right? So DNA and RNA and protein. So we talk about the central dogma, and then we move into gene regulation. Talk a little bit about epigenetics and how that relates to disease, and then I think we're moving now into metabolism, photosynthesis. So we cover the traditional topics, but the difference is, um, again, we're not focusing on, okay, so l tell me the steps of the Krebs cycle, like draw these intermediates, which is, it's kind of useless because at any point you can look that up on the, online. In the age of the internet, all of this, these factoids are available to us. So that's not useful for the students. So for the textbook, for example, uh, with respiration, we are giving them data, for example, of a pathway. So you have this amount of material made and this, so, and we use like, uh, it's, it's case study based almost. You have this instance where there's this accumulation of this protein. What might've caused this accumulation? This is what happens normally, but now we're in a scenario where um, something's gone awry. There's this buildup of one particular product. Knowing what you know about the pathway, can you propose hypothesis of what might have happened and how would you test this hypothesis so a lot of the book I mean I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the book because I think some content is useful so I actually supplement I give them um, supplemental like reviews articles but most of the of the of the textbook is literally like data figures that are applied to say respiration or gene expression oh um, and one of the big sections is, is how did they figure out um, that say, for example, RNA polymerase has to bind to a specific sequence of DNA to initiate transcription. And they actually look at the data to show, like, um, band shift assays. So, to, so I had to show them what an IMSA was. Like, this is something they used to do long ago to show DNA binding to DNA, uh, RNA polymerase binding to DNA. And if you see this band shift, then you know that the polymerase is binding. And you only see the band shift when these other proteins are there, which are transcription factors. So I actually used... Um, band shift assays to teach the central dogma. Like, mm -hmm. 
you need transcription factors present to allow RNA polymerase to bind to begin transcribing and making the mRNA. So basically, the textbook, it's not just, again, paragraph after paragraph of information. They sprinkle the information in there and then, okay, now let's use that to talk about this figure mm -hmm. and what this figure means. So, so have you had experience teaching? So you've taught for a while now as a, I know you did some teaching even as a graduate student, as a mm -hmm. postdoc. And now, did you have any experience from when you started to now structuring your course in a more traditional format mm -hmm. where you did more just PowerPoint slides and you lectured right. the whole time to now you're doing really active yes. inquiry-based stuff? And can you see a difference in student engagement or a difference in your own engagement with the learning process? Yes. I mean, in the beginning, it sounds like it's a lot of work, right, to, to not just stand in front of students and talk, but it's actually easier um, because you put the onus on them now to do the work. So, okay, I'm giving you these resources. You have to do the reading outside of class. Um, you have to keep up with the, the quizzes and, because when you get to class, you're required to do the work. So, um, again, most of the time, the, the class period is spent with them doing work. So I have to – I think back to the first course I ever taught at uh, A&T. Um, I, I was still learning how to structure – to do the high-structure courses. So I really talked to the students just all I did talked um, very little problem solving in class and I realized that they would do well on the test right but say we moved on to a new unit and I asked them to remember what we talked about and try to put it in the context of the new material and they couldn't do it so they were doing fine on the test but say weeks later when I asked them to apply old information to new they couldn't do it and again, it's because they didn't learn it the first time. They were just looking at my PowerPoint slides, studying the PowerPoints, and that's how they would do well on the test, right? So I realized, I mean, it seemed like it went well. It wasn't terrible, but I just knew there was a lot of work to need, that needed to be done. And so. probably the likelihood of if you went back to them six months later, there would not be a whole lot of... Um, I guess remembering mm -hmm. of the information they right. learned and that I mean I totally identify yeah. with that too I mean I remember being undergrad the majority of my classes taught that way you needed to get a certain right. score on the exam but you would memorize because you know you you're cram, busy you're right. always exactly. busy yeah. and you're always have mm -hmm. limited time so you learn to do yes. the absolute yes. minimum yeah. maybe it's just saying more about no. me than and, and sometimes learning is not right. the objective no. right do you just want the grade yeah I mean, and that's what I tell them. So I said, this is not going to be like your typical AP bio class where, you know, you do well on the test and it's all going to be easy. So I tell them, you're, it's like working out. You're going to use this new muscle. So you're not used to analyzing data or, or reading papers. It's going to hurt, right? It's going to be hard. You're not going to like it. I tell you, it's, you're working out. You're working this new muscle. It's going to be sore, right? Your, your brain is going to be sore. But the next time you do this, it's going to get easier. And say by the time you get to your 300-level classes, you're going to be really thankful that we've switched to this model. So I tell them from the beginning not to expect. Um, and they want everything incentivized. So they used to just, what do I need to get this grade? And I say, yes, you want to do well, but it's not all about your grades at this point you're going to feel much better if you've actually learned something. And a student actually told me, he said, well, I am learning when I memorize. That is learning. But that's what they've been taught. It's like, you know, and, and now I'm not saying all high school classes are that way because a lot of high schools are, are also changing the way that, that bio, uh, biology is taught. But I tell them up front, and I think transparency is important, to not only tell them that we're going to do something different, but why. 
So again, that goes to evidence-based pedagogy. There is research to show that what we're doing works. You're going to be prepared later. There's studies, you know, that, that show that what we're, you're going to do is going to be helpful later on. So I try to be as transparent as possible. Why are we doing this case study? Well, it showed data s supports the idea that if you can make real world connections, you're going to remember this for, you know, six months from now. Oh, I remember that case study we did on respiration. It's going to help you make these real world connections and hold on to the information. So I tell them when I do these new things in class, why I'm doing it. And so you find that, that the student buy-in then is higher, yes. even if it's something they haven't encountered in the classroom right, before. Right. So that actually goes along yeah. to a question I had, mm -hmm. which was, I assume the fact that you were hired, or part of the reason mm -hmm. you were hired was not just to teach, but was to implement some of mm -hmm. these teaching strategies mm -hmm. into the department yes. that they didn't Aren't already there. exist, at least not wide, in a widespread right. way in the mm -hmm. department. Right. So that probably means a lot of these students, like you said, were probably encountering this, for the fir this mm -hmm. type of learning, this type of class structure for the first time. What's the reaction of the students right. when they expect maybe to come into intro bio, right. sit there quietly right. for 50 minutes right. while you go through your slides right. and suddenly you're telling them to talk to their partner yeah. or to, I don't know, do an activity? Yes. How do they react to that? There's some pushback. I would have to say that where I am matters. Again, these students are highly motivated. I don't really have to force them to do anything. In general, they usually do what I've asked but they complain like why are we doing this um I just want oh and I say let's do group work well I I can just do this by myself like I'd rather just answer these questions on my own and I say no studies have shown that it's the sharing of ideas that actually enhances your learning so it's not just your own ideas but you're synthesizing the way because we all have different experiences in our that, that shape our perception so you need to talk to your neighbors so there's some pushback um but then again, it's the transparency. This is going to help you later on. Um, and then when we bring it up, so I bring it all back together at the end of the semester. I do this um, case study that actually takes all the themes that we've talked about over the course of the semester and I put it into this one asthma case study. And then I say, okay, now think back to when we talked about this. And I'm like, oh, right, I remember this. And so they get it. And all a lot of um, comments on my SEIs were, I really feel like I've learned something. And that's something the department doesn't traditionally do is to ask the students, what have you learned? And and they can say, I didn't know this before, and now I do. It's like, oh, I remember. And and they appreciate it at the end. So so you mentioned, it was actually kind of funny, but I think fairly insightful, that the university didn't traditionally measure learning. No. But if I think about it, that's probably true. So I guess what you're what you're kind of saying indirectly is the university's always measured grades, mm -hmm. but grades don't necessarily don't necessarily correlate with learning. Right. And what's funny is they've gone through several curriculum redesigns, but there's no data for assessment. So how do you know what to change if you haven't assessed what you've been doing? Something as simple as a pre and post test. Like it's easy to do. A lot of people don't do it. Um, I've actually that was my idea. Why don't we give them a pretest? Because Biology 200, the course I teach, is the first traditional content course that they take. And it's not as if I want to critique the schools that they came from. I literally just want to know what 
are these students coming in my class? What do they know in general? And I'm going to give them the same test at the end to look for gains. That's simple. And like there, there isn't any standard pretest in place. Yeah, so that's and no really, plan for assessment either of the curriculum, actually. So that's, that's fascinating to me. So in some ways, it seems like your experience as a scientist in graduate school and postdoc, like just how you learn to <laughs> scientifically think about and test problems, you bring that to education yes. in your department right. by saying, hey, if we want to know, it's important. We can't make decisions right. without right. actually knowing right. this we or that data. is making a, right. a difference. Right. So here's how we test mm -hmm. it. Um, that's really that's and really I, and it's not that they haven't they don't want to do it. Nobody has the time, right? Because again, tenured faculty have these pressures of, mm -hmm. um, and and all the the junior faculty are they're they're pressed now to get the papers out. And so it's not that, that it's not important to them. It's just when do we find the time to to come up with this assessment plan? Because I mean, it sounds easier than it actually is. I mean, yeah, it sounds easier to really strategically come up like empirical data to say okay this isn't working this is working and then not only that but how do we use it to fix it like we have these data how what are we going to do to address the it's not as if all we have to do is, is to come up with what the problems are but how do we fix the problems all right dan that was uh the first part of my discussion with shannon what stood out to you well i'm uh, i don't know i'm torn on this this idea that everything's on the internet so you don't have to actually memorize or learn anything do you, do you think that's true you know, not to go back to Bloom's taxonomy again. <laughs> oh, geez, here we go. Um, but, you know, I wonder if maybe it's less important that we spend a lot of time just memorizing things, that first level of the pyramid. Um, but I think the understanding part, I mean, the Internet is not going to do the understanding for us. So I think it does take some engagement once we look things up. Here's where I think, I think a paradox comes into play. And that is one of the things Shannon talked about was her experience early on in teaching where she tried teaching kind of in the old-fashioned way, if you want to call it that. And she realized her students did really well on the test, but then if later on in the course she needed them to recall or apply that information, they couldn't remember it at all. But I think the, the interesting thing is that then the students who are receiving this information more through this active learning process where they're doing more analysis and more evaluating. The end result of that is you actually do remember things better than you did if your initial goal was just to remember things. I think that's right. And I think there's a real value in the student pulling the information. So instead of saying, go memorize the Krebs cycle, if you give them kind of a project where uh, learning the Krebs cycle helps them solve it, now they're going to look it up because it's going to help them kind of solve that puzzle rather than just go learn this thing for the sake of learning it. Oh, absolutely. And I know from personal experience, so I started working in the lab as a, as a junior in undergrad. And so, you know, I had two years of taking some science courses before that. And I can really vividly remember being in those intro bio classes. And, you know, I would see the cartoons of pathways and proteins were just little ovals and there were arrows and I did great on the test because I could memorize for the, in the short term, okay, this goes before this and this touches this. But I really remember once I got into lab, it's like a light bulb went off and I instantly understood how all those pieces fit together once I had worked with proteins and saw what interactions meant. Um, everything made sense in a way that it never did when I was just memorizing pictures on a page. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So 
Um, having an application for the knowledge, something to hang it on, seems to really make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting, though, and I could see this too, Dan, I bet if when you were an undergrad or if when I was an undergrad, if we would have had uh, an enterprising young faculty member who came in and suddenly said, all right, we're going to get in groups and we're going to analyze some data, I probably would have been grumpy because I would have said, I just want to sit here, take yeah. my notes. My phone has Facebook. Leave me alone. <laughs> I'll go learn this later. Uh, but I, I, you know, I really like what she said about how it really is, it takes a little bit of working a muscle like for the students to really build that uh, the skills involved in thinking that way in their courses. But what I think is so great about that, and I guess that goes to the whole point of really trying to improve our science teaching, and that is these are the exact muscles that you have to use as a graduate student, as a researcher, and how much better off we will all be, or students would be going into the lab for the first time if they've already experienced these ways of thinking and approaching knowledge. Yeah, you'll be much, much better prepared. Well, thank you to Shannon. That was really fascinating. Now, we've got more from her coming up. Yep, we'll hear more about her career next week. Um, But for now, Dan, what kind of word puzzle do you have for us this week? I've got a good one. The clue last week was, historically, people with this disease were quarantined as their skin turned scaly and peeled off in sections. Disgusting clue. I'm going to say mermaids. (laughs) You know, that's a real thing, right? There, there are mer people conventions now. Oh, well, uh, my daughter Mer-fest is really into uh, the Little Mermaid right now. Okay. So. That is not correct. Uh, I think I actually have a real guess, though. Okay, go ahead. I'm going to guess leprosy. Yeah, this one was, this is a microbiology one for you. I hope, I, I figured you'd get it. Um, leprosy, and then this is actually related to another word puzzle we did before. So, uh, do you remember the, the one where we talked about butterflies? With their scaly wings, Lepidoptera. I do. Okay, well, this is where leprosy comes from. The, the word lep is uh, to peel or scale. So that comes from Latin. And uh, the people with leprosy, their, pin would, their skin would peel off and scale up. And so this is where the word leprosy came from. Now, do people still get leprosy? I think armadillos do. Yeah, I know armadillos are carriers of leprosy. Aren't they? Or they, uh... they... They are the way that you test leprosy in the lab, I think. They're the, the research animal. Yeah. Because they can get it. Um, I don't know if people still get leprosy. It is now called Hansen's disease. It's not, I guess, uh, politically correct to call it leprosy. But oh, like the band? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think the band has it. It's unclear, though. Uh, in 2012, globally, there were 189,000 cases of chronic leprosy. Okay, so... But that was down from 5 million in the 80s. Yeah, not common, but not eradicated either. And we had a puzzle winner this week, Dan. It was Theodosia Wu from the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research in Frankfurt, Germany. So congrats to Theo. Well, let me give you the the clue for next week, Josh. And it is a related clue. Oh. We're doing a a string of leprosy-related clues here. Um, the clue is, if the skin on your head flakes or peels, it's probably not leprosy, but this common condition. I'll read it one more time. If the skin on your head flakes or peels, it's probably not leprosy, but this common condition. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I'll randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. I'm head and shoulders above you on that one, Dan. Oh, that that was a good, good, uh, good extra hint, Josh. If I don't get a lot of answers this week, that means you're not trying, people. 
All right. Well, this was a great episode. I learned a lot about science teaching. Yeah, and I think a lot of people will enjoy that one. So uh, tune in next week if you want to hear more about the actual job of a non-tenure track teaching. That is right. And if there's another job or anything else you want to hear about on the show, let us know. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com or send us a tweet at hellophd or connect with us on our Facebook page. Also, let us know how you make your coffee. Are you a coffee snob? And do you do it scientifically? I'd be fascinated to hear that. Maybe you have your four cup Mr. Coffee that you uh, set your timer every morning. Why not? Why not? Get it done while you sleep. All right, Dan. We will be back at you next week. See you next week. <laughs>